May is Fibromyalgia Awareness Month. It's important to raise awareness about this chronic and often debilitating invisible illness known as fibromyalgia. This month-long campaign is an opportunity to educate people about the symptoms, causes, and treatments of fibromyalgia, as well as to show support for those living with these and other related invisible illnesses. Through increased awareness, we can work towards better understanding and management of fibromyalgia and ultimately improve the quality of life for those who are affected by it. And now on to this week's episode. This is the Conquering Your Fibromyalgia podcast. I am your host, Dr. Michael Lenz. We will learn more about Margaret Mitchell's story, including this week about her brush or scare with breast cancer. I am a pediatrician and internal medicine doctor and a diplomat of the Board of Lifestyle Medicine and Clinical Lipidology. My goal is to weave the best of lifestyle medicine and medical management to reduce and at times even reverse the struggle and suffering of those with fibromyalgia. Now, while I am a doctor, I am not your doctor, and this podcast is meant to be a starting point on your journey to learn more about fibromyalgia. All signs and symptoms should be discussed with your individual physician. Welcome back to the podcast where we are hearing about Margaret Mitchell's journey and struggles with fibromyalgia and related issues. As we continue this journey, we pick up where we left off last week as she is just beginning her novel after having a series of struggles with pain and fatigue. Even in the remotest corner of their apartment, that would be Margaret and her husband's apartment, 1,000 distractions broke her concentration. The jangling telephone regularly brought news of some fresh pains and problems among her family or friends. She considered herself on call for every fainting heart and wounded spirit. Writing a novel is challenging enough, but taking into consideration her untreated ADHD, that created many dilemmas. The telephone would go off, and because there were so many people with illnesses and calling on her, that led to so many frequent distractions and likely delayed completion of her novel, caused great frustration and likely aggravated her pain. This is a all-too-common experience that resonates with so many of my patients who've gone through fibromyalgia in their early stages untreated. Beginning in 1925, her father regularly was admitted and discharged from the hospital to his sickbed at home. She attended to every rise in her dad's temperature or depressed mood. Her brother married in 1927 with the wedding activities playing difficult with her schedule, 
Within a year of the festivities, Carrie Mitchell began a problematic pregnancy that culminated in a miscarriage and severe depression. Margaret dropped her work and attended to her sister-in-law. A series of visitors broke into her work time. She revealed little of what she was doing even to her faithful spouse. Later in 1936, the rumor circulated that John, her husband, had co-authored the novel. The allegation deeply offended her. She said, My husband had nothing whatever to do with it. He never read the whole manuscript until after the book company bought it. This was because the book was not written with the second chapter following the first and the third following the second. Instead, it was written last chapter first and so on until the first chapter was the last written, in fact, several months before the book was sold. My husband could not be expected to catch the continuity of the story when I could only give him scattered chapters to read, which did not allow him to connect all of the dots. After three years of lying there thinking she would never walk again, she exhausted the potential of the city library, not to mention her husband's physical strength in lugging books home for her to read. Finally, she related, he brought home a pound or so of copy paper and said, write a book. I can't find anything you haven't read at the Carnegie Library except books on the exact sciences. Her husband encouraged her, but only in the most general way. He met his wife's ambitions and anxieties with no specifics at all, but with his general and persistent encouragement in the face of her nearly debilitating fears. He held a demanding job with a rough and long work schedule. It often demanded his presence out of town at conventions, tours, and other business. He constantly flirted with physical collapse with the most abysmal level of energy and his constant nagging aches and pains. With the stress, his old, sour stomach revolted. The late 1920s marked a challenging time for him under his difficult and heavy-drinking supervisor, Kelly Starr. In the best of times, he trudged home from Georgia Power and Light Company only to eat and then collapse in bed. In bad times, he called in sick and never left the apartment. To him, more responsibilities would have violated his wife's fundamental sense of himself, herself, and their peculiar partnership. Asking or requiring him to read or oversee her work or sharing her burdens of writing with him went entirely against her nature. Margaret wrote in 1928, I have always hoped that I would be able to help him out, but it seems no less then brutal to shove job of copy reading and criticism on him at night when he is always so exhausted, so I guess I'll have to go it alone till it's finished and then let him do a wholesale butchering. The reference to wholesale butchery introduces another reason for her reluctance to share her manuscript with her husband. She dreaded the prospect of his red pencil. Later, and uh letter to her publisher, she joked about the modification his expert criticisms entailed. She fabricated the picture of John the Butcher. It contains a far less of the benign John Marsh than of the wife herself. 
than the anxiety she projected on the husband critic. The husband himself recognized her predisposition and felt helpless before her fears. Long ago I discovered that anything uncomplimentary I might say was accepted 100%. But just let me be complimentary, especially about the book, and it was discounted as affectionate flattery. By a person who took great pride in her memory and who possessed truly phenomenal powers of recall, Mitchell provided the fuzziest and most conflicting recollections of the chronology of her novel, writing which she constructed the time after. Even more than secrecy, pain is critical to understanding the nature of her decision to write. Her attitude towards her craft, how she wrote, what she finally produced, and finally, when she began. Her ailments hid her work, and her work covered the disease. First of all, it was only physical disability, she insisted, that had ever driven her to write in the first place. That broken ankle that would not heal. Disabilities that prohibited her writing towards downtown or even holding the telephone receiver with comfort. Here then emerges the sequence of events. The ankle went bad in the spring of 1926. She quit her regular job in May. She freelanced three additional months. For two or three months, she read like a maniac. Then just about the time of her birthday, bored and anxious beyond endurance, she put her first words on the paper. Although she protested to the world she was 24, and on November 8th, she began her 27th year. And what she wrote first was a conclusion. The book opens with a chronicle of horror, death, abandonment, rejection, alienation, smashed hopes, and fatal misunderstanding. I replied to describe Mitchell's objective with the telling metaphor. Anyone practicing the drudgery of reading newspapers must understand by now the ritual of a reporter is to announce first with a marvelous effect what someone was killed and then as a sort of afterthought to go on along and describe the events leading up to the tragic first paragraph. So too Margaret Mitchell with all those hundreds of pages of Gone with the Wind marshaled the platoons in her orderly mind, sat down and wrote the climax first. Then she started describing the events leading up to the tragedy. Margaret understood thoroughly just what the book was to be from the beginning to the end. Then she wrote the various chapters as she felt in the mood. She began in pain, and her literary production absorbed her hurt. But an illness of some kind persisted through the entire course of her writing. Even when the ankle was healed, or seemed to heal, other ailments appear to take their place or the new hurts are simply consistent with the old. And almost invariably, the author connected them in one way or another in relation to her writing. One letter to her sister-in-law illustrates a relationship in her mind between her writing and her illness over the two years of her most intense endeavors, between the fall of 1926 and 1928. I'm excited to be able to write again shortly. I can't write in longhand, and for nearly two years the typewriter has been out of the question due to the injury to my breast when I caromed against the sharp point of the bed one evening. 
That injury in that dreadful fall of 1926, she feared, had given her breast cancer. And only after two years did she feel some release of anxiety. Margaret had concluded that when she fell and then had chest pain and breast pain that she had developed breast cancer. Back then, if you caught cancer, it was nearly a death sentence. They were doing some surgery, but just like an infection before antibiotics and before comprehensive treatment for surgery with the up-to-date treatment that we have with breast cancer, that fear was overwhelming. For two years, she had catastrophized that she was going to die from breast cancer. Sometimes we have an injury or pain and we're really afraid that we have cancer. It's common to have someone get seen for a headache and they're really afraid that they might have brain cancer. Well, with a careful history and exam, it's discovered that they don't have brain cancer. That is a relief, but then it's also frustrating if they continue to have debilitating chronic migraines and tension headaches without any hope for any persistent and consistent relief. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I want to briefly interrupt the podcast to inform you about the Fibromyalgia Starter Pack, which is now available. If you are new to this podcast, it categorizes the episodes in a way that it's more beneficial for those new to fibromyalgia. You can access the link in the show notes to learn more. The none too attractive specter of cancer and operation, which has been hanging over 979 Crescent Avenue, has been about dispelled. She bubbled finally in 1928. Some of the original disability, however, remained, she insisted. The breast has a way of getting sore if I use my left arm and shoulder to any great extent. Painting walls, waxing cars, even dancing. But I guess another six months will see me absolutely okay, knock on wood. From this discussion of breast cancer, she hurtled forward without a break, not even a comma or period, to her book. I'm starting fresh, as after two years, the errors seem so numerous, the style so crude, and the characterization so unmotivated and childish. Here it was then. She had given herself breast cancer, she had determined, in the middle of the broken ankle time of 1926. For two years afterward, she had lived in constant fear of malignancy, and this supposed malignancy, of course, had affected her ability to write. Her breast pains hurt so severely using the typewriter. She had composed laboriously by hand, but what she produced proved inalterably childish. The terror of self-malignancy lifted in the fall of 1928, but still other ailments crowded into the breach. In the late spring or early summer of 1929, she had been at novel writing for two and a half years. Her nerves tormented her even more furiously as she approached the completion of the manuscript. More pain and more anxiety oppressed her flesh and spirit. Her raw nerves had cost her the companionship of three friends. Her manic depression, as they described it, however, shaded once more into somatic dysfunction. 
once again with direct consequences for her art. My writing, she continued immediately, goes so slowly as to be almost invisible. After the jitters came a spell of pleurisy, which made her writing impossible. Now that I am writing again, it seems sillier and sillier. As in a letter to a friend, her ailments, her mental anguish, her friend's needs, and the tortures of writing offload together into one ghastly river in her mind. In fame, she explained it all to a curious reader. I labored under considerable difficulties with my writing. For one thing, I have many friends and family to whom I am devoted. And for five years, there wasn't a day that some of them weren't in the hospital with babies, golf stones, automobile accidents, etc. Once I counted up that for eight months, I spent every day in a hospital by a sickbed. Then I was crippled for four years with arthritis with no expectation of ever walking again. But I walk nicely now, thank you, and for months my hands were too stiff and swollen to touch a typewriter. If Mitchell constantly ached while she wrote and projected her anguish into the text, the pain came into play in another aspect of her writing. She has almost a morbid sense of her writing. I am oppressed by the knowledge of the lousiness of what I write, she groaned. Here it was again, the combination of pain and secrecy, of something lacking, or of the oppressiveness of her inadequacy and inability to reveal her deficiency, disease, and lacks to others, which of course was more evidence of those very inadequacies. She usually responded to such high-flown commendations with self-mocking disbelief. She responded to the highfalutin literary judgments with mockery, with herself as always the goat. In particular, I was charmed by a remark about my temple, she wrote later about one critic. Margaret had very clear notions about style and its relationship to characterization. She imagined the book and its totality, and she had equally clear ideas of how she wanted her book to look and be. Her pain with writing is reflected accurately in her relentless struggle for words, usage, and structure to match her ambitions for the book, even as her despair and ever doing so produced its agony. The ambition was too vaulting, the standards too exacting, and the hurts too painful. So she shrouded everything, including her purpose in mystery and secrecy. She wrote, I have felt that Something was lacking in me that other authors, real and fancy, possessed that passionate belief in the good quality of their work, a belief so passionate that they have no qualms about gathering in groups and reading each other's stuff. The plot of her book, its history, and its characters tell their own stories about her life. Although Gone with the Wind has come to be identified with the most conventional romances of the antebellum south. Indeed, it has come to be taken as the very embodiment of that tradition. Margaret Mitchell herself conceived of her history as radical, revisionary, and rebellious. In Scarlet, she intended to create a psychological deviant whose actions flowed naturally out of the necessities of her delusions. The intention actually resonates with some of the deepest interests of her own life. She harbored a secret 
wish to practice neurology and psychology, and she boasted of another skill to psychoanalyze her companions. She read psychology and psychoanalytic theory as avidly as some people read novels and romances, and her library posted a wide range of titles. I thought it would be obvious to anyone that Scarlett was a frigid woman, loving attention and adulation for their own sake, but having little or no comprehension of actual deep feelings and no reactions to the love and attention of others. I suppose it takes a psychiatrist to realize this, so perhaps you can understand my appreciation of your remarks. The author's elaborations of themes reference to frigidity leaps in from nowhere. The reference to frigidity must have had the most explicit meaning for her, as she left evidence of having studied experts in the field. One of the earliest members of Freud's circle, Wilhelm Steckel, had built his reputation on the examination of dyspareunia, or painful intercourse. Why did women have babies? She had culminated during Melanie's line there. Infants made her shudder. White ones, black ones, the difference was inconsequential. Babies, babies, she thought to herself when she was informed of another birth. Why did God make so many babies, but no God didn't make them? Stupid people made them. When we look back, we realize that when Margaret set her mind to something, she was able to persevere, to push through so many obstacles. She also had such a big heart being at the side of so many people who were struggling while they were in the hospital. She also was big into psychology and neurology, all in an effort to help herself understand the struggles she was going to and likely to help others. This is something that I find in many of my patients who are battling fibromyalgia. They are thirsting for answers and explanations and for hope. I am sure that if you're struggling or if you have a loved one who's struggling or if you have patients who are struggling, you have wanted to know what's behind the mystery. Why am I going through this? And the longer you live, the more you realize that it's not normal to not feel normal. And you battle on different levels, wanting to know why. And there are different reasons. There's medical reasons. There can be spiritual answers to the question of suffering. I'd love to hear feedback from what you or your loved one has gone through. You can send me an email at drmichaellens at gmail.com. Despite having so much physical pain, fatigue, and brain fog, she also had tremendous amount of creativity. Once she could see the images, however, she knew immediately it was right, and she completed the section without another thought. She wrote it quickly with pure inspiration and never looked back. She wrote it quickly and effortlessly because it became like a revelation without any warning or expectation like an epiphany it materialized entirely in her imagination in reference to that period of very high creativity she wrote those three chapters i wrote as soon as i returned home from the atlantic city 
They are the only ones she did not rewrite at least 20 times. As they appear in the book, they are essentially as they were written first. It is so fascinating to hear how Margaret was able to capture that inner creative talent she had and apply pen or typewriter to paper to pen this incredible novel. Gone with the Wind was only one of the titles that Margaret considered for her novel. She preferred Tote That Weary Road. Through Scarlet's mind ran a few words of the song she had once sung with Rhett. She could not recall the rest. Just a few more days to tote the weary load. Just a few more steps, hummed her weary brain over and over. Just a few more steps to tote the weary load. Was Tara, the plantation Scarlet's family had owned, still standing? Or was Tara gone with the wind that had swept through Georgia? Tote the weary load resonates with her experience as a woman, a writer, a person, and the daughter of a peculiar woman. The meaning highlights the power of Margaret's own experience with her mother, as her mother used it as a standard reference throughout their lives. Her mother, she said, had sung her to sleep with the doleful songs of the Civil War, to which she attributed her plaguing insomnia. For the majority of you listening who have fibromyalgia, you can identify with Margaret and her insomnia. She relates that her insomnia was definitely affected by the very melancholic, very depressing songs that her mother would sing about the Civil War. You know, we had a podcast talking about sleep hygiene and dwelling on very sorrowful and sad and depressing thoughts was definitely not one of the advice that we discussed. But for many people, they have so many struggles that it's really hard to get that out of their mind. So many have endured traumatic life events, whether it's emotional or physical experiences that they have gone through. That's where we will end this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we will continue to hear more about her journey writing, and we'll be hearing about a performance-enhancing drug that she used at very high levels that helped her finish her novel and likely helped minimize much of her fibromyalgia symptoms as well as ADHD symptoms. I hope you enjoyed this. If you could, please hit the like or follow button. Please share this with as many people you know that need to hear a message of hope and understanding about fibromyalgia. With over 10 million people in the United States suffering with fibromyalgia and many more millions struggling with fibromyalgia-related problems like chronic migraine headaches, irritable bowel syndrome, among others, there are so many more that 
need to learn more and have an empathetic understanding that we try to deliver here on this podcast. Until next week, go Team Vibro. Thank you.